Hi everybody, it's Michael McKee again, pastor at Newland Presbyterian, back for another um, evening with you with the Avery County Prayer Group as we engage in this devotional series on the names of Jesus in the scripture. Uh, we've been going through this for a couple months now and it's been really enjoyable to continue to learn more about uh, the names that Jesus bears in the scriptures Names that reveal um, the content of his identity, of who he is, and also bear witness to the things that he does and accomplishes for us and on our behalf. So it's been really fun to go through that with you guys. Uh, today, what we're going to do is take a look at some of the I Am sayings, or one of the I Am sayings in the Gospel of John. We're going to look uh, today at John 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Uh, that in turn, in the context of Jesus' statement there in John 6, is going to help us understand that in terms of um, the Exodus story and the wandering of the Israelites through, through the wilderness, through the, the Hebrew people through the wilderness, as they make their way to the promised land where um, God sends manna to them in the morning uh, to provide food for them. Uh, so it was manna is, is a bread-like substance. And that in turn will help us uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 9, where we read about the Ark of the Covenant and some items that were held in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, a jar of manna was one of them. But all of those items carried with it uh, part of Israel's history and bore a symbolic quality that actually helped lead us to Jesus and point us uh, to Mary. Uh, Mary, in turn, uh, will remind us uh, that she is an image of the church. And then that hopefully will all come full circle because we are those Christians who are called to bear Jesus in our bodies. Uh, and how does that happen? Uh, ho hopefully this will all come together uh, and we'll see how bearing Jesus in our lives, we can also, as Mary does, share Jesus with the world. So that's kind of the, the outline. That's where we're going. Uh, so first, let's jump to uh, John, the Gospel of John, and uh, recognize that the whole Gospel is actually laid out, um, loosely organized around these seven or, or maybe eight uh, I am sayings that Jesus makes. And so actually, as we're thinking about the names of Jesus in the scripture, um, someone already did, uh, maybe someone did one of the I am sayings in John, I'm not sure, but we could just kind of take each one of those and move through them. And it would be a really helpful way for us to grasp, um, not in the whole scripture, but in John, what are some names of Jesus that help us understand who he is? Um, now, when you hear I am, I hope that you were reminded of the name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. You'll remember that God calls Moses to go back to Pharaoh uh, and, and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And, and Moses says, well, uh, God, God of Abraham, who should I say sent me? And God says, uh, he reveals the divine name to Moses and says, tell them that I am. Tell them that Yahweh, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. 
sent you. And so Jesus picks up on this uh, in his ministry. And when he tells, when he says to a Jewish person in those days, I am the bread of life, a serious claim. Uh, a lot of folks who don't maybe understand what he's saying uh, would say, oh, well, Jesus isn't claiming to be God in the scriptures. Well, actually he did over and over. In fact, that's what prompted uh, Jewish people to, to kill him because they thought he was committing blasphemy and claiming to be God. So he says, I am the bread of life. Uh, John 6 is the first one of these sayings, and so that's where we're going to turn today. Um, and we'll begin um, in about verse 28 of chapter 6. But I want to kind of set the scene for you just a little bit before we jump in. Um, here in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 6, uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000 uh, as they gather there above the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, then in the course of the night, he, just, he, he sends the disciples to the other side uh, and Jesus walks across the water during the night, climbs in the boat with them. Immediately they are uh, to their destination. So he's fed the 5,000. He's walked on the water. The crowds that he fed have now circled the lake and run into Jesus, who they remember leaving uh, on the other side the night before. And they come and they begin to ask Jesus some questions. Jesus says, you're here. You're here because your bellies were filled. And still yet they ask him for a sign. They want a sign from Jesus. That's what they're asking for. And here is Jesus' response, picking up uh, here in verse 28. Uh, then they said to him, what must, we be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Uh, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? Asking for a sign. Then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The first I am statement in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, you caught it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The people come to him, the people he's fed, uh, the people who have seen some kind of miraculous work in that Jesus meets them on the other side, even though they only saw one boat go and Jesus was left there the previous night. They ask him for another sign. They remind him that their ancestors uh, ate the manna that Moses gave to them in the wilderness. And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you the manna. God gave you the manna. And God's the one who's going to give you the true bread of life. And they said, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Believe in me whom God has sent. This is the work of God to believe in Jesus, the one that God has sent and 
to eat of him this bread that never leaves us hungry again. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. In the name of Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, but couched within that whole uh, framework in that whole chapter, and even that conversation with the gathered crowd, is this reference to the Exodus story. Jesus is a Jewish, a Jewish man. His history is the history of Israel. In fact, he kind of sums all of it up in his person. They say, our ancestors received the man in the wood. Remember this story. Um, how after Moses then, having received and heard the name of God at the burning bush, goes to Pharaoh. He says to the people, go. They, they go through the Red Sea into freedom. But it's a freedom that, uh, whose celebration is short-lived very quickly, the people realize we're out here in the wilderness. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing to drink. Do you remember they grumbled and they whined and complained and said, it would have been better for us to be in Egypt than to come out here and die. It would have been better to be in slavery and bondage than to come out here and suffer. You remember how God provided food and water for them? How God ordered Moses at a certain point to, to strike the rock with his hand, but he didn't with his hand. He did with the staff, and when he did... He, he, he broke God's command. Uh, still yet, God, in God's grace, allowed water to pour forth from the rock. And Paul in the New Testament will say, Jesus is that rock. So there's maybe another name for Jesus in the scriptures. Um, God provided water. God also provided food. Uh, in the morning, God provided manna, a, a bread from heaven to fall down upon the ground like dew in the early morning. In the evening, God sent a quail to feed them. But this manna was really significant. Um, if you translate this word manna, it, it literally means, what is it? And that's the name of, like, what is this stuff? What is it is what it is. That's what manna is. And so they would go out and they would gather up this manna in the morning. God gave them some directions about this and said, you can gather what you need for the day, but don't try to store up enough for tomorrow because tomorrow I will provide for you again. So the people would go out in the morning, gather up enough manna to eat. It filled them. God provided for them. They were thankful. The next morning they would get up and they had to trust. They had to believe that God was going to provide again. And God did. God always provided. God gave more manna the next day. Gave more of this what is it for them to eat and to receive and to take into their body and to sustain them in their journey and their wandering. God gave enough for the coming day. Not enough to gather up and store for tomorrow, but enough for today. Uh, and in the same way, then, uh, as God is leading his people, he's proving himself to them. He's showing them that God is a God that we can trust. God is, is going to care for us as a provider, as a father, as one who gives us what we need. And in the same way, the people were required to live by faith and not by sight. They couldn't store up enough manna and set it on the shelf to make sure that they could take care of themselves. No, every day they had to learn to trust and to trust deeper and to trust more completely that God would provide and God did provide. Um, so in the course of the Christian life, this is just an amazing story 
uh, and I'm not sure if I've said this on here before or not, I think so, how the Exodus journey is kind of a microcosm for us of the Christian life. Uh, it's sort of a hint or a copy at what we have to live. So we are in bondage like Israel was in bondage. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. We are in bondage to sin. God sends the rescuer, Moses, to the people and sets them free. God sends Jesus to us who comes and sets us free. Uh, God then takes us and leads us through the waters of baptism, even as Moses led the people through the water of the Red Sea. And we embark on this journey, this, this uh, Christian journey, during which we find ourselves not always happy. Jesus says that to follow him, to live the life of a disciple, to walk with him is to take up our cross and follow him. In the same way the people wandering through the wilderness suffered, they suffered hunger, thirst, didn't know what was going to come, but they had to live by faith during this time. And the things that they endured and the things that they suffered also strengthened their faith in the same way that the things that we endure and in the ways that we see God always providing, even through the difficulty and the suffering, strengthens us in our faith. The people made it eventually to the Jordan River and crossed over into the Promised Land in the same way that we shall one day cross the Jordan and pass from this life into the life of eternity with God. So crossing the Jordan is this picture of entrance into heaven. So there's kind of the, the, the outline. And you can see how receiving the manna every day um, for sustenance for Israel is the same thing that we must learn to do with Jesus, who is what? Who is the bread of life, who feeds us every single day, who provides for us every single day. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Worry about the concerns of today. Allow Jesus to feed you, to nurture you, to provide for you today. That's words that we can hear anytime but particularly uh, in the midst of a pandemic and social strife and difficulty and hardship. Uh, Jesus even teaches us to ask for this in the Lord's Prayer, which we started this whole group kind of meditating upon. Give us this day our daily bread. Who's, wh what bread is this? Well, in one sense, yes, we need the practical bread of uh, food that will allow us to live. But in a deeper way, in a spiritual way, what we really need uh, is Jesus, the bread of life. So you're beginning to see some connections. If we want to understand how is Jesus the bread of life, well, we can look to the story of the man in the wilderness. The, the, the need to receive Jesus, yes, in our hearts asking Jesus to come and to save us. Many of you probably have a personal story that you can tell about the moment when you place your trust in the Lord and ask him to come into your heart. But in a very real sense, we need to ask that question every single day. And the good news here, reflecting upon this story, is to know that when we ask Jesus to come and to feed us and to provide for us and to sustain us and to help us grow and develop by feeding us the bread come down from heaven, by feeding us with his very life, he does answer that request and that call day in and day out. That's incredibly good news. So we want to understand Jesus as the bread of life. We can look to the man in the wilderness. If you want to understand maybe a little bit more fully how all of this connects with your life and mine and the whole story of the scripture, uh, I invite you to look with me at Hebrews 9 in the Ark of the Covenant. 
Uh, in Hebrews, the, the preacher, this is largely a sermon. This whole, this whole book of the Bible is a sermon. Uh, in chapter 9, we learn just a little bit about the, the earthly holy place, uh, the temple of the Old Testament. And the preacher is trying to help us understand that this was a copy of the true heaven, or the true temple, uh, which is in heaven with God. The things that we are given to see in the Old Testament are actually copies of the reality. In the same way that we can see the manna is sort of a copy of the true bread, as Jesus puts it, that comes down from heaven. Uh, we can also take a look at the, the things in the Ark of the Covenant and the things of the Old Testament, which I've tried to draw up here. Uh, it's amazing what you can do with Google clip art and trying to copy that on the board. We can see how these items are copies of the heavenly truth and reality. Uh, and so I want you to listen to this and we'll try to make some connections here. So chapter 9 of Hebrews Begins Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. The tent of meeting, right? is what it started as before um, David and wanted to build a temple and Solomon did. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, right here, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, right here. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and he continues on. Uh, so what I'm hoping to do is, is connect some of these Old Testament images for you in such a way that you can understand uh, not only how Jesus is the bread of heaven, but also how all these images and symbols connect us with Jesus and help us to understand, based on how Israel dealt with these things, how we can receive Jesus more fully in our lives. And so um, uh, you'll remember that, okay, the, the, the jar, the urn of, full of manna, uh, connects us to the story of the man in the wilderness, right? Uh, Aaron's staff that budded, you remember Aaron's staff. Uh, when Moses went into Pharaoh, he took Aaron with him because Aaron could speak a little better than Moses could. Moses was a bit nervous about all this. And they each have a staff. And Aaron's staff, uh, when Pharaoh wanted a sign that these guys had some degree of uh, power or authority or God on their side, uh, he wanted a sign. Moses threw his staff down and it turned into a serpent. Pharaoh ordered his magicians, his court magicians, to replicate this feat. And so they all did. They threw their staffs down. They turned into serpents. Uh, you remember what happened with Moses' staff that was a serpent? It swallowed up all the other serpents produced by Pharaoh's magicians. That same staff, when Aaron picked it up, turned back into the serpent up, turned back into a staff. 
Uh, later we will hear how this same staff was used to determine uh, what tribe of Israel would become the priestly tribe. And so in order to demonstrate that the Levites would be the priestly class of Israel, having no land of their own in the promised land, uh, all the other tribes got a land or a territory that would be theirs, but the, priests, the Levites did not, uh, the other tribes would provide for them, and their responsibility was to attend uh, to the worship of Israel uh, and to the work of the temple and to the tent of meeting and all of these uh, things that God had called them to in the covenant. And so uh, when this happened, Moses had them all toss their, uh, each tribe bring a staff and, and leave it out. And Aaron's overnight produced buds. You know, a dead piece of wood is now blooming. This is a sign of God's choosing of Aaron and his family to be the Levites, to be the priestly class, the tree that buds, or the staff that buds. Now, the early church will connect this story, uh, trying to understand, okay, well, how does this shed light on who Jesus is? Well, uh, can you remember another dead piece of wood that produced life? Well, of course. Uh, the connection here is with the cross. This dead piece of wood planted in the ground used to nail people up and kill them. This instrument of torture and death with Jesus upon it. Our great high priest, Aaron was the priest, right? Jesus is the great high priest, as Hebrews will talk about uh, in great detail. Jesus is the great high priest who, when nailed upon that dead piece of wood, turned it uh, from an instrument of death into the very means of life. Life for me, life for you, the life of the world, the life of the church across time and history. Uh, you can see how this item in the Ark of the Covenant points us to the cross of Christ and to Christ's priestly work on our behalf. The third item, uh, the tablets, the law, the commandments, right? Uh, the thing that Paul says over and over was meant to show us our need uh, for God, our need uh, for the grace of God because we couldn't do this on our own. We needed uh, Christ. And the law, uh, John Cal as a Presbyterian, John Calvin says uh, that the law helps to show us uh, our own failures and uh, to convict us of our own sin. It is also meant to constrain evil. This is the second use of the law. Uh, you know, if you see a stop sign, well, you'll probably do it. Um, more people do it than not. And so, it, you know, if there were no stop signs, if there were no rules against uh, certain things, then people would just be blowing through intersections and having lots of wrecks and bringing lots of destruction. So the, uh, the second use of the law is actually it, the law does constrain evil because we have some regulations against certain things. But the third use of the law is to show us how to really live. Um, after we recognize our own sinfulness, the law first convicts us of sin. After we recognize that and come to God asking and begging His mercy and receive that in Jesus, uh, we can look to the law as a means to help us, uh, help constrain the wrong that is in us, but also it helps us um, to, to learn what it means to live rightly, to live in the fullness of God's design and purpose for us. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, tells the folks there, 
that he came not to abolish the law, not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus did fulfill it on our behalf. He did what none of us can do or have done. Uh, he completely fulfilled the law. And so these items are all in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which had careful rules about how it was to be uh, uh, constructed, overlaid with gold. Uh, you've got cherubim, angels here on the, uh, on the top. Um, and in the ancient world, ancient Near East, this would not have been a, probably a terribly uncommon religious artifact. There were other places and other folks and other groups who had stuff like this, but the difference was they would have an idol right here between the angels on what is called the mercy seat. They would have had some kind of representation, physical idol that would represent or constrain or contain their God. And it was really odd then in that time and place for people to go and see if they were fortunate to see as they carried this around, the Ark of the Covenant, that there was no God there. That would have completely startled, shocked people of the ancient Near East to see that on the people of Israel's Ark, there was no idol. Where is that God? And of course, you know, the second commandment, you shall not produce any graven images or, or idols, any likeness of God. Uh, it's empty here. Uh, there's a hymn in the church that says that God is enthroned between the cherubim. These things, according to Hebrews, are a copy of the reality. And so as we look at the manna, we can see that Jesus is the manna, the real true bread of heaven that comes down and nourishes us. We can see when we look at Aaron's staff that budded the dead piece of wood that brought forth life, we can see the cross of Jesus. It's a copy of the real thing, uh, the dead piece of wood that brought life to the world um, by our great high priest, who was the priest offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. We can look at the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and see how it convicts us of sin. It constrains evil. But now, having received the grace of God, it shows us how to live well and in keeping with God's design, His good design for us. Uh, we can see the Ark of the Covenant, a beautiful thing that it is. We can see the cherubim on either side of God. And in Revelation, we hear about the four living creatures uh, who are covered all around within uh, with eyes who forever sing uh, to the glory of God, worthy are you. Um, we can see that these all point to the reality of God enthroned in the heavens. All these things point to Jesus. Uh, so what I want to do really quickly is connect the mercy seat right here with an understanding of who Mary is in the church uh, and is representative of the church. So I have here an icon which is uh, just a depiction of Mary. Uh, someone in our church went to Poland and brought this back to me. And here's Mary uh, holding Jesus. It's full of symbolism. This icon's full of symbolism here. Um, the church came to understand Mary uh, as that reality which the copy of the ark pointed. In particular, Mary is understood to be the mercy seat, the place upon which the, the, um, the king takes his seat. And so in all the icons of Mary, you will always see her holding Jesus right here. And he, you can see that 
the child, he's sort of a child and a man together, but he is um, seated. Jesus is seated there upon Mary, even as if he were seated upon the throne. And Mary is holding Jesus in an interesting way. You can look at it, and in one sense, you can notice that Mary is holding Jesus kind of tenderly. Uh, it's her child. It points to the humanity of Christ. It points to the fact that when God chose to become human in Jesus, he chose to have a mom, a flesh and blood mother. And that Mary loves Jesus, her child, as mothers love their children. But in another way, uh, she's holding him. You can, you can also kind of blink and look again and, and see. It almost looks like Mary's trying to hand Jesus to you. As if she is saying to you and who, you who look upon this image, here, take him, hold him yourself. He is for you. Uh, receive him. So there's a tradition within the church that sees Mary as the mercy seat upon which Jesus sits, takes up uh, residence with us. Um, really quite amazing to think about this. So, so the second step you've got to take, if you're willing to go that far and see, um, in some ways, the ways that the art points to Mary, I also want you, if we think of Mary as a mercy seat, I want you to also think of Mary as an image of the church of you and me together. Are we not also like Mary, called to hear the good news proclaimed by the angelic messenger, the good news that an angel just means uh, emissary or, me or messenger, one who carries a message. Are we not also called to hear the good news that God has looked favorably upon us, that God has given His Son and wants to give His Son to us? How? By the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what the angel told Mary? Isn't that how we receive Jesus into our hearts so that our hearts actually become a throne upon which Jesus can sit and be honored? Uh, a place where Jesus is worshipped, the throne of our heart. Are we not also called to receive by the power of the Holy Spirit Jesus within us in such a way that He grows ever more uh, fully within us to that point which we shall give birth to Christ, such that He might be shared with the world. All of these things are connected. It's amazing to me to see that the beauty and the intricacy of how all these things, how all time and space, how all the Scriptures, how the work of God and the Spirit and in Jesus it's all drawing this together. And so the question is, how can we receive the bread come down from heaven? We receive Jesus as Mary did by saying, be it unto me as you have said. When we hear the good news of what Jesus has done for us, He's gone to the cross for us, He set us free from sin and death, uh, from Pharaoh, that he, he wants to lead us through the waters of baptism and into a land of promise. That he wants to walk with us uh, through the wilderness. When we hear that, we need to say, Amen. And yes, come, Lord Jesus. We receive, we, we offer ourselves to God. He gives uh, Himself to us by the Holy Spirit. We say, Yes, Amen. And then 
We take up the prayer that Jesus taught us to ask daily for daily bread. Who is the daily bread? Well, Jesus is the bread of heaven, the daily bread that sustains us and empowers us for God's work in His kingdom. Uh, we are called also to come to the table of the King who sits enthroned upon our hearts so that we might receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, yes, the cup of salvation, the blood of Christ shed for you, but also the bread come down from heaven, the body of Christ broken and given for you so that you might do what? So that you might take of it and eat of it, this bread that when we eat of it, will never leave us hungry again. Hope this brings some things together for you. Uh, God bless you. Uh, let me pray for you quickly. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of this grand story, this transcendent story that you are telling that includes all of our stories. We thank you that you pursue us. You pursue us in your son, Jesus. Um, you go to the cross for us and walk out of the grave for us and ascend for us and send the Spirit to us and you give us bread at your table. We pray that we might come to receive that bread evermore in our lives so that we might bear you in our life even as your mother Mary did, so that we might also share your life with the world even as she has done. We pray that in all these things you would come to be all in all for our blessing and for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.